0: Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us as people for our good. Let's attend to its reading as we read the inerrant and infallible word of God. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Finish our reading and then I'll... Say, this is the word of the Lord, you may respond with thanks be to God. And so we read. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not teach us. And what we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. I oftentimes become frustrated with my lack of ability to finish jobs around the house. These are usually simple jobs in the grand scheme of things, but I lack the skills to do them. As a suburban dad raised in the suburbs under another suburban dad who perhaps wasn't the handiest of all, not that I'm trying to bring dishonor upon my wonderful father, but maybe not the handiest man I ever met. Uh, Really, what I do mostly is change light bulbs and change the temperature on the thermostat around the house. That's about as far as my skills go. I became particularly frustrated Uh, late Friday evening. I was trying to uh, unclog a terribly clogged sink drain. Couldn't get it and uh, was going at it for quite a while, getting frustrated with myself. Simple job, right? But I don't know the ins and outs of everything and the exact way to do things, so I become frustrated. And a lot of times in scripture we encounter simple instruction. A job that lies before us that is fairly simple to do. But we know from living life, striving to obey our God and to obey our Lord Jesus Christ, that simple things can often be out of reach, particularly if we feel like we don't have the power to do them. And so we remind ourselves this morning that the sovereign power of our triune God is our hope in attaining the things that he commands of us. Think of the words of Augustine, Command what thou willest, and grant what thou commandest. God, command of me whatever you will, but grant to me what you command of me, because in and of myself I cannot obey you. I do not have power. We're commanded to have a unity of spirit and purpose, to be one in mind, to be one in love and affection, unified in our love and unified in our conviction. In a world that is so divided, it's amazing if you go and you look at all of the books that have been published in the past two years or so on the idea of the divide of our culture and and how we're going separate ways on so many things. In a world so divided, the church is to be different. A nation that is different, set right in the middle of this world united in spirit and in purpose but it's only by the sovereign power it's only by the grace of our triune god and our responding to that work that we can have the unity that he commands we're going to go through this passage a little bit out of order taking the cue from my seminary professor Dennis Johnson maybe you remember when he preached here a few years ago uh, but uh, go through this verse a little or this passage a little bit in reverse we're going to find out exactly what it is that paul commands of the Philippians and thereby what he commands of us. And then we're going to see the particular mindset that is needed to obey this command. There's a mindset, and that mindset is, of course, humility, that posture that God loves to bless. But lastly, we see it's not simply about knowing and then adopting a mindset. We need to submit to the power of the sovereign God in us, so that we might obey. And so we'll come back finally to what Paul states in verse one, which is sort of proclaiming these glorious indicatives, these truths about what God is doing and has done in his people. So here's our life-transforming reality this morning. Since the triune God is wondrously working in us, as we realize this work, our hearts are turned towards God in love. And affection, which then empowers us to have a spirit-wrought unity as the people of God. We realize the work of the triune God in us. Our hearts are turned towards God with love and affection, and that allows us to have a spirit-wrought unity as the people of God in this world. So first we see the command to be unified, the way to be unified, and then the power to be unified. Command, way, and power. First, the command to be unified. Last week we saw the instruction to be citizen soldiers as the church, standing for the truth, struggling for the faith of the gospel and suffering on the path of obedience, following our savior and looking to our savior and the suffering that he suffered for us and for our forgiveness. So we counted a great joy when God asks us to go through trials as we obey him. In that way, Last week's passage was about having unity in our outward face. As we face outsiders, those outside of the church, we are not to let them deter us from our mission, but we are also to be committed to showing them, through a sanctified heart, to show them Christ-like behavior and Christ-like love. So we stand upon truth, but then... As God's people, we don't bear the sword, we joyfully suffer on the way of the cross. And that's part of our witness to the world. So it's important to see the connection between that passage and this passage. They're both dealing with unity. One is the unity of the people of God as they face outward. This week is the unity of God as we face inward. Really, the the, the stuff of our unity within ourselves as we live amongst ourselves. The two go together, and perhaps one feeds into the other, but they're both certainly worthy of separate consideration. Similar to last week's passage, there is really just one command here in this passage, but the force of the command is carried over to those phrases that talk about being certain things. So when Paul says, complete my joy by being like-minded by being one in spirit. He's commanding us to be like-minded and to be one in spirit. But really, it begins with that central command, make my joy complete. This sounds perhaps a bit selfish, doesn't it? Make me happy, is what he's saying. Be concerned about my joy, which would be ironic if it is selfish, considering the content of this passage. Paul's saying, humble yourselves. Be filled with humility. But really what Paul is doing is he's putting on display exactly what he is commanding here. Paul has, uh, through being a sanctified apostle, through loving Christ and having communion with Christ, he is a humble person and he has an entire disposition that is oriented towards others. Paul's greatest joy will be to see those whom he has loved and those to whom he has ministered to be more sanctified and more faithful people of God. That was the greatest joy that Paul could experience on this earth. So what Paul is doing, he's saying, increase my joy. And by doing so, he's inviting them into that mindset, that viewpoint that he has to say, my greatest joy is to see you grow in your love for Christ and in your love for one another. The Apostle John says something very similar a couple of times in his epistles. First John begins by saying this, what we have seen and heard we announce to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Apostle John was saying, I'm giving you these things so that you might believe these central truths about the gospel and about our God, but it goes beyond that. He's saying, I want you to not only know the truth, and embrace the truth, I want you to walk in the truth. So he goes on to say, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, and knows God. John's great passion was that the people of God would know the truth, and walk in the truth, to have a a unity of belief And life of faith and of action. And then he'll say later on in 3 John, one of those really short epistles that perhaps we go over too quickly. In 3 John, verse 4, it says this, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. No greater joy, John says, than to hear of my children, that is his spiritual children, walking in the truth. To have inward unity, sanctified love, these are tangible expressions of what it means to walk in the truth. There's instruction and conviction in this, isn't there? In our overly individualistic mindset and just the way that we're wired to sort of process the entire world through our own lens of experience. And to just naturally sort of elevate our own preferences in the way that we think about things above that of others. We can sometimes use that to take something that's very good, a concern of ourselves growing in love for Christ and in sanctification, which is a very good thing. But we can often lose out on the greater joy of rejoicing in the growth of others in grace. The greatest joy of Paul, the greatest joy of John, was to see the people of God walking in the truth. I was reading a book on the pastoral ministry this past week, and it's an early church book, Gregory the Great, fourth century pastor. He's talking about the life of a minister. And the life of a minister, he said, it needs to be taken up in deep contemplation and uh, rich education of yourself through the Word of God. But if you are not filled with the compassion for your people in order to impart to them those same blessings that you are enjoying, then uh, the, the work of the pastor, the work of the ministry will be severely limited. You need to have a compassion that towards your people, so that your people would join in that great joy that you have, loving Christ and loving one another. The picture for Paul was almost like a cup. His cup of joy is not going to be filled until he sees the unity of the Christians in Philippi, until he sees them loving one another with a sanctified love. This is actually a very real issue in this epistle. In chapter 4, he's going to be talking about Euodia and Syntyche, two women uh, who helped Paul in establishing that church and how they've gone separate ways and created factions within this church. Paul's desire and his greatest joy is their unity. It's an astounding picture, isn't it? You can think of the, the rich communion that Paul had with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And he's saying... My joy will not be completed until I see you, this far-flung congregation that he didn't even see on a regular basis, until I know that you are walking in love towards one another. There's a unity of mind and heart that he commands of them. The first is be like-minded, have a unity of conviction. He says, complete my joy by being like-minded, and then at the end he says being one in spirit and purpose. And being one in purpose is really just another way of saying, be like-minded. So he repeats that command. Be of one mind. Have a unity of conviction. This goes beyond mere head knowledge. It's not just be able to repeat the words that you have been taught. It goes beyond that. Conviction is something that you know and believe such that it creates a disposition or a common viewpoint. We think of our saying, Q&A 1, of the Catechism in many of our services. And it's, it's not just about knowing those words. It's the disposition, the viewpoint, the worldview that it creates. That our comfort is found in Christ alone and we live life together according to that truth. To have a unity of conviction. Really the, the viewpoint, the mind that he calls us to is that which we see in Jesus Christ, Have this mind among yourselves, which he goes on to say later on in this chapter. "Have this mind, which is what we see in Christ Jesus. though he's in the form of God, he humbled himself. And we'll get to that passage next week, that glorious, wonderful passage, perhaps one of the greatest high points of the New Testament. This shows the utter commitment that Paul had for his people, and that we need to have for the truth. We need to be a people of the truth. Dennis Johnson says in his commentary, as we see the truth more clearly, we will see eye to eye more often. Think about that. As we see the truth more clearly, we will see eye to eye more often. So unity and truth don't go against one another. Sometimes, a lot of times in our world and sadly in the church, uh, there is unity at the expense of truth, where unity is prized uh, above truth. But we need to be people that have a unity that flows out of the truth. We need to be committed to the teaching of God's Word. We need to be committed to the regular exposition of God's Word. We need to be committed, as we saw last week, to Reformed confessions and catechisms, for that are the, those summaries of the great truth that God has given to us. We need to be committed to the means of grace, the worship on the Lord's Day, and even the great blessing of of hearing the word preached to us twice, in the morning and the evening. When you see the truth more clearly, when God teaches you the truth of his word, you will see eye to eye more often. You need to have a unity that flows out of truth. The Apostle Paul says this, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Be people of the truth, he says, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Peace, love, unity, they flow out of truth. Romans 15, 5, May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be united in the truth of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says, and when you are, then you will with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be united around the essentials of the gospel. One thing that's wonderful about the Reformed faith and finding a lot of our identity in the Reformation is that it was a time where the church said, what are the essentials of the gospel? And let's draw a circle around those things. Let's have the church be able to say from the pulpit, thus saith the Lord, and to go that far and no farther so that the liberty of conscience is protected, that the people of God might live in unity. Certainly we need wisdom for those things and we ask God to reveal that wisdom to us. Paul will actually say later on in Philippians chapter 3, I don't know everything, but I pray that God will reveal it to me. I pray that God will reveal it to you. And the only way that we can do that is by by being committed to opening up God's word and saying, what does it say? What does it have for us? It's not just a unity of truth, though. It's a unity of affection. It's a unity of love isn't it? Be united in conviction. Be united in affection. Have the same love for one another. That love that God calls us to. A radical love or forgiving love. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 famous passage, if I have prophetic powers if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love I am Nothing. We are to have a deep love for one another, united in truth, united in affection. The picture there, I had this picture in my mind as I was thinking about it. It's, it's a, a group of people. You know, I, th- I thought of a, an army or even a football team. I, play, I played college football, so my mind goes there often. It's a group of people united in purpose. They're standing shoulder to shoulder and facing those outside of them, shoulder to shoulder, one in purpose, but then arm in arm as well, united in love. United in love. Uh, I was extremely insignificant on my college football team, I assure you, but we were a pretty good team when I played there. And the message that we always wanted to send to our opponents was that we are one in purpose, but we are one in love. And so I remember in the special times we'd walk out to the field and we'd be shoulder to shoulder, but we'd be holding hands. We'd be saying to our opponents, you're going to have to go to war against a team that will die for one another. We love each other. We're united in purpose, and we're united in love. Shoulder to shoulder, united in the truth, and arm in arm. That's what Paul commands of us. And there's a way to be unified, and that is to adopt this posture of humility. The posture that God loves to bless. He loves to bless the posture of humility. We most most of us have heard many times famous opening phrases of verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Paul has used that word selfish ambition earlier in Philippians, hasn't he? He used it to describe those who were going around preaching the gospel but doing so so that they could elevate themselves above Paul. And Paul's heart was hurt by this, but he said ultimately I will rejoice because they are doing the right thing, but there is a deep, important lesson for us here. And that is that self-centeredness can manifest itself in our lives such that we can do the right thing for the wrong reason. We can do the right thing for the wrong reason. I remember going on a couple of missions trips, uh, taking care of orphans in South Africa. And I remember even in my own heart, while I was... There, I was worried about making sure that we got good pictures of myself and of the group so that we could show other people what we were doing, so that we could, in a sense, be impressive to people. That was a sin in my heart that I was holding on to at that time. People will often serve in order to be noticed. They know that humility is often a prized virtue in our world they will have one eye turned towards doing what they know is a good thing to do and one eye turned towards the praise that they might get it's summarized quite well in the way the king james renders the word vain conceit maybe you all remember the old translation that one word vain glory vain glory the wooden translation of that is empty glory kenodoxia empty glory in other words they're talking about a glory that comes from man. A glory that is ultimately meaningless because man cannot confer true glory on another man. That comes from God alone. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he's calling them to believe in him. He's saying, this is the, word of God. This is the work of God that you believe in me. I'm the one that God has sent. And Jesus says, you will not believe in me because you are wrapped up in the glory that you receive from one another. You sit at the best places in banquets. Everyone looks to you, the Pharisees, when you enter a room. Everyone wants to be you, and then you have this environment among yourselves of praising each other because of your system of self-righteousness. Jesus says, you won't believe in me because you're obsessed with this vain glory, this empty glory. Belief is emptying yourself of that And looking to the one whom God has sent. Empty and glory will still be echoing in the next passage when Paul separates that compound word and speaks of the one who empties himself so that he might receive the glory of the Father. Both of those words are going to show up in that hymn of Christ in verses 5 through 11. In other words, Paul is saying man's glory is empty, but if you empty yourself truly, you will share in a glory that far exceeds the passing approval of man. This is the posture that God loves to bless. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. And when we see the humility of our Savior, when you see the humility of Jesus Christ, how can we honestly think that we ought to continue to pursue the vain and passing recognition that our hearts so crave? When the God-man passed up the vain glory of the world to receive the glory that comes from the father when he indeed left the true glory of heaven so that he might humble himself to save sinners doing the right thing for the wrong reasons might be enough for a world that often can't do the right thing but God calls his people to something more than that to humble yourselves and to seek the heart that God commands of us a heart that is humble but we need to be careful of another error don't we Sometimes we think that humility can just mean self-loathing, of going around and thinking that everyone is better than you. I've heard many pastors use the example of Eeyore, and I think that's a good one, right? Eeyore is actually the most self-centered person on the show Winnie the Pooh, or whatever it is, movie show. Uh, He is really the most self-centered person because he's constantly viewing himself relative to others. He's obsessed with this contrast of saying, I'm no good and everyone else is better or more fortunate than I am. I think the best way to think about how the Bible prescribes humility is this phrase self-forgetfulness. That's what we are to walk around with, a self-forgetfulness. Humility begins with a posture that seeks to truly forget about one's self and to serve others in the joy and the freedom that can only come in Christ. You're not consumed with a desire to advance your name. You're not consumed with this idea that you have that you are better than others, but you are also not consumed with a self-loathing that obsesses over your insufficiencies. It's serving God in joy and freedom and seeking his approval, the one who alone sees the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. First Peter chapter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Yes, it is good and proper and biblical to seek the exaltation that God will give and confer upon his people who remain humble in faith and obedience in their life. The same thing that Jesus Christ did. Despised the shame. Sought the glory that comes from God. The glory that he bestows on his humble servants. So when Paul says, consider others better than yourselves, he's not prescribing a self-loathing that we just warned against, but rather he is saying that the church cannot operate with the same honor-shame hierarchy that existed in Philippi and in many ways still exists in our world. How one is treated in the world often is a product of the position that they have. I was reminded of this. I'm reminded of this now when I do uh, hospital visits and I'll often wear the badge that I've been given as a police and fire chap. And it's amazing to think about all of the visits I did up until that point and what I do now and the difference with how people treat me. All of a sudden now I walk in and I have this status. And so I'm higher up on today's honor-shame hierarchy, whatever that is, And you should see the difference in how people treat me. People going out of their way to help me, doing whatever they can to help me, asking me what I need. I even got a big discount at lunch the other day, so now I'm going to have to wear it to all of my uh, lunch rendezvous. So if I show up like that, that's why. The point is this. Paul is saying, I don't care how Rome defines any of you. I do not care the position that you have in the kingdom of Rome. That is not where you are ultimately a citizen. In Christ, we are one. And in Christ, we have the same honor and glory and position. So in the church, the unity that Paul commands of us stems from a miracle of two people standing side by side. Say, one is a Roman governor and one is a Roman slave one from a high position and one from a low position. And the one who has the higher position rejects the expectation that this person exists to serve you and to make sure that your needs are met because that's how that culture would have operated. And sadly, oftentimes, it's how our culture still operates. God's people crying out saying, I care not how the world defines me. I care how God, the God of heaven, defines me. There was a church I heard of that has a celebrity section, and I'm sure there was some logistical thing that they had to do that, but that's probably the wrong mindset, right? Saying, if you're a celebrity, you sit over here. This doesn't mean also that we reject all notions of hierarchy and authority. God places some people in the the church in positions of authority. But the great miracle and what fosters church unity is that those who are placed in positions of authority serve. And the great picture is the elders of the church serving you, uh, the elements of communion. And that's really the picture. When When you sit down in a restaurant, the waiter, the waitress, they're there to make sure that you have all of your needs met. And that is what the leaders in the church exist to do, to minister to you, to serve you. It's flipped on its head, right? You flip it upside down. That's why the church is to be unified. So Paul says, that's all you have to do. Humble yourself. And empty yourself. But of course, as we know, we don't have the power to do that. We want to stand shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm. We want to count others' needs in front of our own, but we know that we fall short of this. But the great promise that Paul gives to us is that the power to do this is found in the triune God of grace, the God who alone can create the people who live. This way, by the power of His Spirit. And so in verse 1, there's actually a reference to the Trinity. We see the Spirit named, and we see Christ named. But I'd suggest to you that that second phrase there in verse 1, if there is any comfort from His love, that's actually a reference to the love of the Father. This is often the way that Paul thinks. We end a lot of our services by giving the benediction of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There are other passages in the New Testament that do this same thing, that speak of the work of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the love of God the Father. But perhaps the bigger consideration is what Paul is doing in verse 1. You see, he has all these phrases, if you have this, if you have that, and he's not asking whether or not you have them. He's stating them as fact, You could insert there, since, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, and since you have comfort in his love, and since you have fellowship in the Spirit, then do these things. In other words, Paul is reminding them that the triune God is working in you. He has begun his work, he will be faithful to complete his work, and thus he is, by God's grace and by the sovereign power of God, creating in us a confidence. That God is creating in you the heart that is able to humble itself before the mighty hand of God to be united in truth and to be united in love. There is comfort from the love of the Father because his love is all-sufficient and never-ending. There is love or there is encouragement in being united to Christ for where else could we base our encouragement in this world but that in Christ we are reconciled to our God and our Creator. He's wanting to create in us a confidence to live into these things so that we might live the way he calls us to live. So really, it's a call to love grace love grace, see the work of the triune God, the triune God, the powerful, matchless, and mighty one who created you and who created all things is the one who is working in you so that you can do what seems so impossible, what goes against the grain so much of our own mindset that we think about things relative to our own needs and our own preferences. Paul says tenderness, if there is any tenderness and compassion. And really that's just a reference to the mercy of God. Love grace, he's saying. Look at what God has done. Look at all that he has done in redemptive history. And love the grace of God. Love what he has done for you in Christ. And if you love grace, then you will love God. And if you love God, you will adopt the posture that he commands of you in this passage. To have a heart set aflame with an upward love, a love for the God of grace, a love for the humility of Christ, that is the heart that will truly, by the power of the Spirit, live out a biblical humility. It will desire God's truth and yet deeply long for a unity of affection in God's people, shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm. It will love the identity of of being in Christ and being a citizen of heaven. It will uh, know the passing relevance of how the world defines you. It will treasure the grace of God above all. And knowing that grace truly will live reflecting the very character of God. That's what we're called to do, reflect the character of God who welcomed you, a sinner, into his eternal kingdom. If that's true and if you love that truth, Think about what it creates as you think about the power of the triune God working in you, giving in you a confidence to be able to do the impossible, humbling yourself, considering others in front of yourself, thinking not only of your own interests, but also the interests of others. We give thanks to God for his work in us. May he continue it. Let's pray. Jesus, we adore thee. And we thank you that we are reminded that it's only in you by the power of the Spirit you give and because of the love of your Father, Lord, that we can do any of these things. And great Father, we thank you for sending your Son and for willing to give us this great word. We pray that you will empower us as a congregation, as your people, to have a unity of mind and a unity of love and affection with hearts turned towards you and then turned towards one another uh, as we seek to serve and love the way you have called us. May we find our citizenship and our identity rooted in Christ and uh, live according to that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.